Hey, 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 hey. Welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. Mark and I don the black cap and convene the International Court of Doctor Who Crimes. And as Gary Danny used to say... Come on, let's make magic. So we're back, Mark, after our award-winning Omni Rumor interview with Dave Hoskin. Uh, well received, apparently. Uh, how have you been? I've been very well. Should we mention the cricket? I'm happy to mention the cricket. Australia went down in <laughs> a screaming heap against uh, against uh, the uh, the mother country, against England. I my antipathy towards the Australian cricket team stretches back uh, many years. A bunch of overpaid, overspoiled, hubristic uh, fools. Who, who deserve to be taken down, not one pig or two, but a couple of dozen. The team and its attitude to cricket, I was reading an article, I think it was printed in the Sunday Telegraph, or the Telegraph um, a few weeks ago, that was talking about the mental disintegration that the Australian cricket team has employed for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, cricket has never been a, a gentleman's sport, we all know that, but uh, on the flip side, you can actually play the game in the right spirit of competitiveness without crossing the line into outright abuse. I think people, some of the cricketers you know, confuse, you know, playing the game hard with being a bastard. Um, and uh, it's nice to see them lose, frankly. I, there's nothing that I've seen in the Australian cricket team over the last 10 or 20 years uh, that has led me to like most of them. There are some nice individuals there, certainly, and there's a great deal of talent that's gone through, but fucking, basically. So good on England, I say. Now, speaking of cricket, there is a certain uh, doctor who is a big cricket fan, and this doctor had a bit of a, uh, a dispute shall we say, about a certain poll that uh, he appeared in the same issue of DWM in. That's a nice segue, Mark. Excellent. I used to work on school radio, so that was the Smiths. And now, here's Kylie. <laughs> lovely, back, lovely back announcing there, Mark. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the alternate career I should have pursued. So in the, uh, in the barren times between seasons, fandom picks up various fevers and goes a little bit crazy. Uh, you know, a bit of cabin fever waiting for Capaldi to come out once again. Uh, so Colin Baker was interviewed uh, by DWM via proxy, uh, Nick Briggs. And uh, then once it was published, Colin uh, went on to Twitter to express his uh, terminal frustration with uh, how he feels about having... Well, I think it was... The interview was printed in the, in the same issue a poll That's right. was printed as well. And I, he just got an aversion to poll, basically, <laughs> because more often than not, the Colin Baker era uh, weighs down the bottom of the polls. Isn't that right? Not exactly right, because I went back to uh, DWB in 1985... And the Twin Dilemma was number three in the all-time Clangers uh, poll. Uh, Horns and Iron was number one. So there was a poll where it wasn't lower echelons of the chart. But uh, look, polls are used all the time, aren't they, to gauge political parties, how they're doing. And the top 40 charts are polls in a sense, aren't they? And the DWM polls have been going for about 30-odd years. Mm. I think it was an editorial mistake having uh, an interview where the, the, the actor in question said, I don't like polls, and they published the season nine poll, even though it's got nothing to do with it, but he's in the same issue as a poll, and of course, you know, languishing at the bottom as uh, in the forest of the night. So I do think it was an editorial misstep. You know, I went back and had a look at DWM 474, which had the biggest, uh, the, the very best of the first five decades poll, and of course, Twin Dilemma, bottom of the heat. Fear Her was uh, just above that, and just above that was Time of the Rani. Now, I don't hear Matthew Graham or Pip Baker or Sylvester McCoy or David Tennant 
complaining about the positions of those stories and polls, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, for apparently the last six or seven years, Colin has had a problem with DWM uh, stemming back from the top, was it the Mighty 200 poll of 2009, I think it was? Yes, that's remember. right. So, yes. Look, if Colin doesn't like to be asked what favourite monster sort of questions at conventions, either, you know, when you go up on the stage and say, look, hi, glad to see everybody. Happy to answer your questions as long as you don't ask me what my favourite monster is and, and things like that. Or just don't do conventions. Well, that's a fair point. I think my takeaway from the whole incident is that Colin is still extremely sensitive about his position with, within Doctor Who, even after all these years. If, if Doctor Who were an obscure show that basically died in 1989 and we were all ooing and ahhing over the 17th iteration of Star Trek and Doctor Who was long forgotten, you'd be scratching your head and wondering exactly what he was on about if he was still complaining after 30 years. But since Doctor Who is you know, currently a massive show with heaps of new fans coming through, willing to explore you know, the extensive back catalogue of the show, of course it's, it's, it's obvious that new people would be asking, you know, what's the Colin Baker era like? And like a scab that's being picked at yet again, the same old hurt arises with the same old allegations that he was crap, that his era was crap, and you know you shouldn't really watch it because if you do, you're not going to avoid toxic shock syndrome. Look, I can understand where he's coming from. I mean, you know, if people were still abusing you for something that you did, you know, some work that you did 30 years ago, uh, I'd be, you know, I'd be in, in, in approaching despair. Abusing's a strong word. All it is is people voting their favourite stories to, to not-so-favourite stories. DWB used to put words like all-time clangers. DWM just basically rank them top to bottom, and it's just the way it is. But if you're the lead actor in a show uh, who's, you know, 11 stories, who the majority of them in the bottom half uh, of, the, you know, these polls... I mean, the polls are basically anodyne. They're a list of names... Uh, but, you know, you look at it and you go, well, bugger, the story that <laughs> that uh, I debuted in uh, is at the bottom. I mean, how does that make me feel? Even after all these years, these people just, you know, can't appreciate the... They, they don't underst- understand the context of the times. They don't understand what I was expected to do or asked to do. It's it's easy for Capaldi now to have more input uh, as an actor into his portrayal because that's the, that's the context of the, that actors are working in now. But back in the day... You know, uh, producers were your, you know, your your overlord, and actors were basically serfs to an extent. And people just have this knee-jerk reaction that Baker equals crap, um, and they just, you know, not willing to understand it. And the polls sort of just sort of pick at that. We can also say from McCoy's perspective, you know, here his era, the beginning of it wasn't particularly good. Uh, you know, and Tom and the Rani was only two up from where the Twin Dilemma was placed. So, and McCoy sort of makes a half-hearted joke saying, well, I killed Doctor Who. But he doesn't have the, uh, I suppose, he's not carrying the emotional carnage that uh, Colin Baker seems to carry. For McCoy, it may just have been a job and he moved on and it didn't kill his career. But I think that Baker being, you know, some... I mean, you, you look at you look at the context within which Baker came to the show. He was saying that he wanted to, you know, be in the series longer than Tom Baker... Uh, yeah, he's the shortest, other than Eccleston, he's the shortest running uh, actor in the role. I um, mean, it just, you know, it, it, it would hurt. It would still hurt. And as a proud man, and, you know, there's undoubtedly he's a proud individual, to have this sort of thing raised again and again and again. You can understand his reaction. The po- I mean, what happened in DWM is innocuous enough. Uh, but I, I can still understand his reaction. Speaking of reactions, can you have you anything to say about how Tom Spil- Spilsbury conducted himself afterwards with you know numerous tweets and and comments on his own blog about the, the whole thing? Do you think uh, uh, Spilsbury should have engaged in any way or? Tom Spilsbury took it quite personally, didn't he? And mm. he wants Colin to love him, but on the other hand, DWM want to keep their polls and 
the one to keep doing those sort of things, so you can't have your cake and eat it too, Tom. Spilsbury finds himself in a bit of a position that of his own making, as you, as you say. I mean, DWM is going to take the approach that, that polls, uh, you know, an annual poll is a popular thing because people like contributing and like seeing where their stories uh, are placed, and it, it you know creates a conversation not only in the letters column but also out out in the in social media, which you know is to the good of the magazine. It raises its profile to an extent. Uh, but then on the flip side, if your polls, and it's the nature of a poll, there's always a loser. You just can't say, even though Twin Dilemma is at the bottom of the poll, people still like it. At the end of the day, it's at the bottom of the poll. People don't like it. It's rated last out of all the stories that have ever been screened. So, you know, you can't sort of um, uh, run that line that, uh, you know, we, we love you, Colin, and all that sort of thing, and yet print polls. Either print the polls and don't engage with, with Baker's uh with Baker's commentary, because clearly Baker doesn't like what DWM does. You're not going to get another interview out of him now, and you're lucky to get this interview out of him. So don't um, don't grovel. Was probably too harsh a word. Uh, you know, we all like to think the Doctor Who was one big happy family. Uh, <laughs> crap. If anyone's been to a Christmas lunch, not all fa- families are happy. There's your drunk uncle at the end, falling into his gravy, and then there's the you know the young people up at the other end, and then there's people screaming and yelling at each other. Doctor Who is not he's a broad church, but no church is happy. And don't try to make it. Don't try to make it happy. Just you know, it is what it is. And the fact that they had to go to their respective blogs and write a counterpoint, it's like oh, how much energy is taken to writing that instead of getting on the phone and say, Colin. Let's talk about it man to man. Did you see the poll for season nine? No, I, ha- I haven't had a chance to have a look at it. Uh, but I think you said that In the Forest of the Night is uh, last? Number 12, In the Forest of the Night. Number 11 was Kill the Moon. Number 10 was Caretaker. Number 9 was Robot of Sherwood. Number 8, Into the Dalek. 7, Time Heist. 6, Deep Breath. 5, Listen. 4, Last Christmas. 3, Dark Water. Death in Heaven. Really? 2, Flatline. And one, Mummy on the Orient Express. Very surprised with Listen. I thought that would have been at least number two. I'm surprised Into the Dalek is as high as it is. Yeah, Kill the Moon. I liked Kill the Moon, but just some of it was just head-scratching. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and what does does Mummy on the Orient Express, uh, being at number one, say about the majority of fandom who responded to that? They like simple, self-contained stories. Did we say last year uh, when it was screened or after it was a screen? We liked it. it. We did like it. Did we say it was? Uh, it had more of a classic series feel to it? I think we did. That's interesting. Yeah. We like bottle episodes, do we? Fandom does? Without with it, with the, without the great overarching arc um, just you know troubling us. Yep. Well, then what does it say about fandom that they like uh, Dark Water, Death in Heaven as, at three? Is there a sickness in fandom that needs to be extirpated? Have you read that uh, in, the Ameri- in the Americas they're releasing uh, Dark Water and Death in Heaven in 3D? So you can go see it in a cinema and it'll be so close you can see the misfire. <laughs> do uh, Out in the colonies that never rebelled, do we get uh, the 3D version? I don't know because I think we'll be protesting, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an American exclusive, I okay. think. Even if it did release it here, look, people will go and see it and, and good on them. Sh- shall we pick um, it at Mac? Shall I, you and I? No. Yeah, but I want to see myself on the 6 o'clock news as the, you know, the, the funny end story at, at <laughs> 6, 6.29 as they're sort of leading out. And here are two crazies picketing their local cinema. Put on the cushion movies. Uh. <laughs> Just like when they released Phantom Menace in 3D, I didn't go and see that. Actually, speaking of Peter Cushing, I've been watching some Hammer movies recently and he's popped up in a couple of them. Oh, uh, what was it? The uh, the vampire lovers. That sounds a bit saucy. It was actually uh, a bit of uh, if you, if anyone under the age of fourteen is listening to this, uh, nudity, uh, lesbianism, 
This is all in 1970, by the way. Uh, Kato Mara was in it. Ooh. Ingrid Pitt was in it. Mm. Uh, was she uh, karate chopping vampires? No. Kato Mara was quite good in it, actually. Did she get a top off? I can't remember. She did. <laughs> and Ingrid Pitt definitely did, I think. So, anyway, uh, anyway we can move on from that. But, uh, yeah, Peter Cushing, uh, lovely chap, very good actor. Um, uh, just to think that about that time his beloved wife passed away and he was absolutely devastated and uh, mm. he still uh, still still went on regardless of his uh, deep and abiding grief that lasted until he died so uh, yeah Peter, and just a, a tip for all those people out there who haven't seen the Dalek movies see the Dalek movies they're a lot of fun they're a lot of fun funny you should mention it I actually watched uh, Star Wars A New Hope episode 4 mm. uh, last night because my son wanted to see it and he goes this episode 1 dad I said yes yes it is <laughs> In my universe, it is. So, do I feel bad about lying? Yeah, sure I do. But, you know, he got to see Peter Cushing. Uh, a tip to all future parents, uh, uh, all parents lie to their children. But those CGI effects, you know, they just stick out like a sore thumb. It's probably because I've seen it so many times, I know the changes he did. There's a, how big a role does Cushing have in um, Star Wars? A, a New Hope. Yeah, Grand Moff. You may fire when ready. Fair chunk of it. He's, he's in and out. He's there. He's there. He's got a presence, you know, like Alec Guinness has got a presence. I read a funny anecdote about Alec Guinness and his relationship with Star Wars fans. He had none. He would refuse to sign autographs when, when, when accosted in the street by, you know, fans in the 80s. He wouldn't have a bar of them, you know. Did him and Cushing, when it came to their salary, they just took a very minimal salary, mm. but they then said they got a percentage of the, of the box office. Is that right? And it's re-releases as well? I don't know. It'd be great if their estates took a cut of uh, Lucas selling out to Disney. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That'd be hilarious. Uh, no, I don't. I've never heard that story before. I would have thought that the the actors taking a percentage um, sort of started later in the eighties when I know Jack Nicholson uh, took a percentage of Batman's uh, box office and absolutely raked it in. Apparently, so um, yeah, yeah, interesting. I wonder if uh, I wonder if anyone in Doctor Who currently takes a percentage of the of the box office, the uh, the, the international sales. That would be interesting. What I would love to know, and we're right off topic here, but before we go to our real topic, when Doctor Who came back. There was a production company that was set up by, I think, RTD and a couple of the other producers. And I've never read an adequate explanation about how that sort of thing works. Obviously, well, I would assume then that um, if, you know, does BBC outsource a lot of its stuff and, and, and buy in? Doctor Who is a wholly made BBC Wales production. There's no uh, independent aspect to it at all. So, yeah. I thought I'd read some, somewhere something about about that. If any of our listeners know anything and would like to point us in the right direction, um, uh, all our social media links are at the end of the podcast. The classic range DVDs were outsourced to Dan Hall's production company towards the end. So well, That's true. But worldwide trying to cut their costs. Correct. Interesting. I had a point to make about sport. But um, now it's gone. I, I think I've bagged the Australian cricket team. They're crap. And so it's a twin dilemma. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> so the main thrust tonight is Mark and I convening a quasi-international war crimes tribunal of... Uh, Big Doctor Who production muck-ups. Uh, Mark, we've uh, we've both independently sat down and uh, written up a list of our top five, because everyone loves a list, as, as we discussed earlier with the Doctor Who polls. Uh, so the format will be, uh, we'll discuss one each, and we'll alternate, obviously, and then we'll have a quick chat about our points, and if, if, uh, if we're way off Mark or on target, 
And uh, we've also invited uh, commentary from our listeners. So we'll uh, we'll see those through the, the discussion. So hopefully uh, everyone enjoys it. Uh, once again, we do love Doctor Who, but, you know, we take the good with the bad. And it's always interesting to sort of revisit these sort of things and uh, and, and, and have a discussion about it. And, and hopefully we can, you know, have an entertaining discussion without, you know, killing the, the Doctor Who dream, as it were. And also we excluded Missy and the Panonoster gang from any of this discussion because, let's be honest, it's too easy, isn't it? Very easy. It's uh, shooting fish in a barrel. Let's try to expand our horizons a little bit. <laughs> yes, we, we must broaden our dislike instead of just simply narrowing it. All right, so I'm going to go uh, from the top. I, uh, as, as I said at the start, I've donned the black cap. The, 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 uh, the guilty party is in the dock. There's a bell tolling in the background somewhere. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with... It, look, it's going to be fairly obvious... Uh, but let's just let, 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 let's go with that. Now I've prefaced this. Uh, I've written up my notes here, and my notes. Uh, the first two words in capital letters are that coat, uh, that coat. <laughs> uh, let's let's go back thirty years, everyone. In black and white or in silhouette, there's nothing particularly offensive about that coat in the sense that an unseen turd is inoffensive. What it was, however, was further evidence of a production team that had badly lost its way. Whatever you think about Colin Baker and the performance he was asked to give, every single scene he is in reminds you with the force of a hammer to the head he is wearing that damned coat. In an era where Doctor Who, unbeknownst to the TV audience, was fighting corporate inertia or indifference about its place in the schedule and needed every shred of, of credibility, that coat was sufficient to tip the balance, at least in my mind. It fully fulfills its remit. It is utterly, utterly awful, a cancer that ate away at the show's street cred, leaving behind a pulsating, gurgling mass of derision and playground bullying. Apart from forcing the lighting team to drain 20% of the national grid in order to light the damn thing correctly and thus killing any sense of atmosphere stone dead, that coat marked the show out as lacking seriousness, and in the eyes of the audience, that proved fatal. Or, more simply, if the lead character is dressed like a clown, why shouldn't the audience regard him exactly that way? Uh, now, most viewers would be too polite to point the finger at Baker's performances making them reach for the sick bag, or who lack the postmodern training so loved of taxpayer-funded social science departments, the length and breadth of the land to articulate what exactly was wrong with the scripts, or who couldn't summon the energy to cut their way through the thicket of obscure continuity references, but that coat is the easy marker on which to place all your indifference about the show. More like a shroud on a corpse, that coat may have been the beginning of the end of Doctor Who as a series appreciated by a mass audience. Wow. But it works really well on audio. <laughs> you know the funny thing about audio? <laughs> the funny thing, remember the Big Finish, um, a Big Finish uh, production real time where they, did, they, they married it up with um, uh, in, uh, uh, illustrations, uh, a little bit of you know, very right. limited animation, yeah. and they tinged the whole costume in blue, in shades of blue. Uh, and it looked fantastic there. And in Revelation, where he's wearing that blue uh, coat, it looks great. Mm. And in The Two Doctors, the coat is, is, is code for the whole costume, basically, people. In The Two Doctors, where they're in Spain, and, you know, in deference to the heat, Baker has the coat off, the overcoat off for, for most of the time. The costume almost gets away with it. But it is, I, I like enormously Colin Baker. And, I, you know, when I was younger, I really felt sad and sorry that he got the shaft, basically. Um, but you know, for all my liking of, of Baker and, and and sort of appreciation of what at least the production team was trying to do, even if it was inexpertly done, uh, the, the the costume and, and the coat is is emblematic, I think, of a of a production team that had lost its way badly, uh, especially with J and T at the head. 
at the helm. So yeah, it's just it's just it's, you watch you watch these episodes and it, you just you can't take your eye off it, and it detracts from what the, the story is is trying to say. Sometimes yeah, I'm colorblind on in certain color ranges. Really? Yeah, when I see that coat, I can see the whole bloody thing. It's that. Garish. What's left to say? It's it's an absolute travesty. And the silly thing was, after season twenty two had aired, J and T could have at least done one thing to refresh the program. And the first thing I would have done was bend that bloody costume and get something decent. Even the costume he had for the Ultimate Adventure Play in nineteen eighty nine mm. was a lot better made. It was garish, but it was actually it didn't punch you in the in the uh, in the proverbial nuts really. A, a bit more south, yeah. It, it's it's really sad because. It's just sad. I mean, we, there's no need to, you know, <laughs> pick on overall wounds. It's just, uh, and this is what I was saying earlier about, you know, Baker is very sensitive. I mean, you know, f- from the outset, he would have preferred something else to wear. I mean, he wanted to be all dressed in black, mm. apparently. Um, and it's just, it's just one more reason for fandom to kick him in the Sixth Doctor, which is unfair to an extent. Unfair to an extent. Mm. But the costume is 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 god awful. God awful. I don't think anybody's going to. Uh disagree with you on that to be honest and, and my larger point that you know if you're if you're tuning into the show and you're you know you're sort of you know your tea time watcher on a saturday and you've, you've grown up with a tom baker or john pertwee whose costumes are more bespoke and sort of th- well thrown together in a sense um this mm. this whole idea of uh, and, and could sort of blend in with the surroundings to an extent uh just this i this being assaulted uh, visually um, you sort of you begin to wonder. Well, is this the show that I I, I liked and, and grew up with? And, and what's the what's the what's the production team trying to say here? And uh, I know the eighties fashion wise were a disaster, um, but there was no real need to go down this path at all. The reason J and T did the uniforms was for the uh, marketing perspective, but putting Colin Baker in that costume, who the hell is going to market that? Well, exactly. I saw some um, some photos uh, taken at this. I think it was San Diego Comic Con where they had. They, these people had roped together a whole group of uh, Doctor Who cosplayers in, in various uh, Doctor Who costumes, uh, costumes of the Doctor. Sorry. Wasn't Osgood, was it? Uh, no, no. And that, from the left, they had you know Matt Smith and uh, David Tennant and a few Tom Bakers and a few John Pertwees. And on the extreme right were two <laughs> two sad looking Colin Baker outfit uh, wearers. And looking oh. at it in that visual spectrum, even brought it even home to me much uh, even more that it dominates one end of the spectrum and it's just it's terrible to look at the other ones much more understated if outlandish to an extent this is overstated and outlandish and it just does not work my entry into this uh, discussion my first entry i should say is silver nemesis and for the life of me i can't understand why you would have in a season of 14 episodes with four stories why you'd do another story which is very very similar to the first four episodes of the season you've only got four slots to showcase what the series can do and you're using three of those episodes to basically repeat what was done at the beginning of the season worse it's no improvement it's just not very good at all while we're going into that i mean season 25 started the progression upwards for me and i think from a season structure it would have been better to have remembrance as the anniversary story in the middle of that season so the three slots that were used for silver nemesis could have been used for something else to start the season off ramp it slowly and the anniversary would have been remembrance and that would have been a much more fitting anniversary story than silver nemesis ever was it was embarrassing you wonder what the production meetings would have looked like where well why didn't anyone pick up the fact that you know the, the plot lines uh, for remembrance and silver nemesis basically ran parallel 
except that the execution was was you know completely different on, on both productions um it's just it's just a strange thing that uh, that they never sort of picked up on that. I mean, obviously afterwards, fandom picked up on it very quickly. But it when you've got a season as you know as short as that, you you want as much diversity in the stories as possible. Um, and uh, again, was it J and T going? It's the twenty fifth anniversary. Silver, Silver Nemesis, Cyberman. Let's stick the Cyberman in there and. I suppose having the Cybermen in the story, much like having the Daleks in the story, there's there's you know a sort of a larger scope to it, and then the the, the story parallels come out that way. But if you can have the Cybermen in it, that's okay. But give them a completely different story and different plot. Get them into space. Do something with them. How would you have celebrated the twenty fifth anniversary? By having Remembrance as the uh, as a twenty fifth anniversary story. Yep. Alternate universe Cybermen story, then Remembrance for the anniversary story. Yep. And then have Happiness. Patrol and Greater Show to finish it off. I just think those three episodes were just wasted with a with a story which is a similar plot. And you know the main focus of that story from a press perspective, I think, was around uh, they were trying to push the point of who is the Doctor, mm. you know, and made this thing at the end saying Doctor Who, and it was a lost opportunity, I think. I caught the tail end. Is it the wedding of River Song where the the season finale for that season where the Doctor is killed? Series six, yeah, yeah. series six, and uh, they were asking. Much the, well, one of the characters at the very end was asking much the same question of the Doctor. Doctor Who, you know, Doctor Who. Um, that's a question that doesn't need to be answered, just for people out there who might be listening. Um, we don't need to know who the Doctor is. It, it's just unnecessary. It, it, it's silly and it's unnecessary. And in that regard, in the way uh, Cartmel handled it, I think uh, the whole idea of a more mysterious Doctor was handled much, much better than the way they've currently done it in the new series. But it's still, it's not a, it's it's a question that shouldn't lead to an answer, uh, if anything. Mm. Mm. It's like um, name of the doctor. There's many many names, Valyard, blah blah blah. Um, yeah, I'm quite happy not knowing. The early days of the program, we really didn't know who this person was, and mm. I think as we start peeling off layers from it, it's sort of demystified a bit. That's a shame. I mean, I like um, if you if you read uh, the Remembrance of the Daleks novelization, there's a, there's a lot of myth building around the Doctor, which for me, I, I like that sort of thing. I've I've, I've read a lot of. Uh, uh, epic fantasy over the last you know thirty or twenty or thirty years, so I like that sort of thing. So where the Daleks regard the Doctor as you know the, the the bringer of darkness and and or the oncoming storm in in the new series, I like that sort of thing. But that mm. is just a that's not telling you anything about the Doctor's past. That's telling you about the, who it's the Doctor hinting. is. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. I mean, I, think I prefer the, the hints. The Doctor Who is the title of the show. It's not a question that's being asked. Uh, and I think it's a mistake that the production team goes down that way because, A, it just sounds really silly. You, 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 have, a, you have someone saying the words Doctor Who, Doctor, like that, like their blue-faced head did, and it's just, it makes no sense. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and yeah. there are better things to explore in the show than the identity, <laughs> identity of, the, of the main character. Anyway, that's just my two cents. What's your next one, Rob? So my next one is Davros after Genesis of the Daleks. Um, <laughs> so Davros and Genesis yeah. of the Daleks is to Missy and Death in Heaven as pure genius is to quacking retardation. Uh, much of the greatness <laughs> of Genesis of the Daleks, one of the greatest Doctor Who stories ever, lies in the brilliance of Michael Wish's performance. That said, trying to capture lightning in a bottle again and again during the remainder of the classic series was always going to be something that would have unintended consequences, not just for Davros who went from being a scientist with understandable motivations uh, to a would-be galactic conqueror, but for his creations as well. Now, in a story since Davros is a disaster for the Daleks, from Genesis onwards, all future classic series Dalek stories revolve around Davros. 
Uh, the Daleks entirely lose their agency and decay from being arch manipulators with genocidal tendencies to being mere adjuncts to Davros's plans. So in Destiny, they come to him for help in breaking a logical impasse with the Mavellans, of all things. And then in Resurrection, the Daleks need him to cure a virus. Uh, and now at this point, I'm, I'm forced to say without a trace of irony, to hold in my hand a capsule that contains such power, to know that life and death on such a scale was my choice, which is a great quote from Genesis. And in Revelation, the Daleks capture him to put him on trial, which you just scratch your head about that one. And then in Remembrance... It's Eric Saywood, though, isn't it? He loves his trials. Well, he does, he does. But uh, in, in Remembrance, he he's their, their emperor pulling the, their strings. So the Daleks should never play second fiddle to anyone, basically, especially their creator. Uh, much of the thrill of watching the Daleks is in their plotting and scheming and murderous ways. In and of themselves, they are exemplars of pure evil. Now, you take that away from them, and with Davros in charge, they really just become uh, like remote-controlled robots, either responding to his command or reacting to his presence. And even with their flawed portrayals in the new series, the Daleks have regained much of what they lost to Davros, which is their scheming, their malice, and their implacability. Uh, I love Davros as a character, and the individual performances that the different characters, uh, different actors have brought, you know, I've appreciated. But in terms of their effect on the Daleks who after the Doctor or the second greatest thing about Doctor Who uh, is, is one that has diminished them so especially in the classic series and and, and that's uh, and I think that's down to the understandable in a sense uh, concentration on Davros who is a character who has you know motivations and 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 plans and and and, and, and indiv- capable of individual you know thought and expression but it, it does detract from the Daleks themselves. Were you happy to see Davros back in Journey's End and Stolen Earth? Uh, the little pe- little part of my heart that it loves continuity like that, uh, and in a sense it's a validation, not that it needs it, but it's, in a sense it's a validation for the classic series. I did enjoy it. The, what Davros was trying to do, which was destroy the universe, was utter bullshit. Utter, utter bullshit. It just makes no sense. Uh, I thought that the portrayal was was good by the actor whose name is whose name escapes me. Julian Bleach. Yeah, the Bleachmeister. Um, but why the why Davros wanted to destroy creation uh, in such a complicated way or just any particular way um, was uh, was beyond me. But um, and just you know you know go, just demonstrates a you know an, an erosion of the character as well. I mean, when you look at Genesis of the Daleks. Davros, you know, has said to his people, "There are no, there is no other life in the universe. It's only here on 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 Scaro. Um, so he's, he's he's a scientist with a very limited world view. Uh, but as the series progresses, his his motivations and aims, once he begins to understand the universe, expands correspondingly. But it you can expand so far that you be just just become diffuse. And 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 in uh, those two episodes in the new series, I, I the way they used him." And his motivations made no sense to me. And when Donna uh, absorbed that whole time of meta crisis, what do they do? Turn the Daleks into remote control toys, and Davros as well. She's doing all these, you know, moving these dials, and all of a sudden they start going dizzy, dizzy, and yeah. All I can say, all I can say, is Phil Morris. If you have power of the Daleks, please release it. Just please release it, because the Daleks in that are the sort of manipulators and scheming manipulators that I was talking about before. I mean, they're in a position, from my memory anyway, in a position of relative weakness, and they're using the humans 
to further their own ends. And it's 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 a wonderful use of the Daleks in that sort of situation. I mean, you know, before that, they're the the galactic conquerors and all that sort of thing in the Dalek Master Plan. Here, uh, this this group of Daleks have been reduced to being forced to force back onto their sort of you know ability to manipulate those around them. Uh, and I think that works really well. And it's much, much better when they're like that than, as we said before, you know, remote-controlled robots, effectively. I mean, in, in Destiny of the Daleks, the, the line there is that they are robots, isn't it? I mean, otherwise, I why so, would there yeah. be a logical impasse between them and the uh, the Mavellans? I haven't seen Destiny in years. It's good. It's a good story. Good. I watched it last year. It's great. It's great. And now it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Season 17 is a lot of fun. Full stop, isn't it, right? I have more to say on that later. Okay, so we're going to do a Season 17 cast later on. <laughs> And Mark, what's your uh, what's your next one? The dropping of historical stories. Ooh. I think season five. Let's be honest, is pretty much apart from Enemy of the World. It's Monster of the Week, Base Under Siege. Very limiting uh, story plot lines, and but I think history has such a very rich tapestry. And the Aztecs and Marco Polo that it can be exciting and educational when the right topics are picked. I mean, Highlanders would that have been a topic I would have plucked out of the air to to showcase a historical? Probably not. In the new series, they could definitely do a pure historical and get away with it. You can do it in 45 minutes, choose a topic which is exciting and will make the kids run off and try and find more about it. And you can use that line, you can't rewrite history. It just would be horrible for Black Orchid to be considered the last pure historical, even though it was set in the 20s and wasn't really that historical. It was hysterical, (laughs) but wasn't really historical. I agree. I think that with with this new Doctor, with Capaldi's Doctor, with his sort of iron-willed approach to everything that if they were to find themselves in a rather tragic episode of history where the audience is introduced to a group of people who are doomed at the end and the doctor knows he can't do anything uh, and Clara insists that he do something uh, and the after or you know the, 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 the with the with the realization at the end that uh, despite her best efforts these people are doomed uh, much like, uh, say, Barbara in the Aztecs, I think that would be a good approach. I mean, sometimes we're, 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 we're given history as a bit of a theme park. We're given the sanitised version of history. But, you know, like our present-day lives, history is complicated and sometimes bleak and sometimes dark and sometimes brooding and oftentimes tragic. And yeah. it would... You don't want to scare... You don't want to terrify the audience, but you want to, you want to make them realise that history and time grind everyone down in the end and uh, even the doctor you know you could just see Capaldi's doctor at the end of the episode just sort of you know what could I do what could I have done Clara I mean to a certain extent we have seen that with his refusal to uh, go back and save Danny but I think that uh, involving third parties in the tragedy uh, now this is not asking anyone to go back and revisit the holocaust or anything like that um, you know, there, perhaps there are some some aspects of history that are too dark. There's some subjects you wouldn't touch. I mean, it's Doctor Who after all. It's it's not it's not Luther. The production team would say, well, you know, but people like the exoticness of Doctor Who. They like uh, the aliens. They like the the special effects. They like the excuse to have science fiction elements. That's fair enough. But past history is alien to us. I mean, the sort of the the culture and the mores and and, and the way people lived and their and their expectations are completely alien to what we, you know, would expect. I mean, we this year say in America uh, and, and and around the world, you know, same-sex marriage is uh is uh is sweeping the globe basically, especially in the West. 30 years ago, 
that, that the idea of the, that, that men would be able to marry other men or women would be able to marry other women would have been laughed out of court. You would have been laughed, just laughed at, basically. It just goes to show that even 30 years ago, in, my, in our lifetimes, the world was a very different place. You go back 100 years ago, it's completely alien. You go back 1,000 years ago, it's just, you know, it's in another dimension. And I think the show is missing a trick by not exploring something that is familiar yet completely different. That's right. They could do something like the Russian Revolution, where you know what the outcome is. Mm. Um, but again, look, you don't want it to be like the Magna Carta and King's Demons. So let's be honest, it wasn't a particularly good subject you know, to choose from. Mm. But you've got an unlimited format, but it just seems to be sort of stuck in the same kind of storytelling. Just, just try something new. And you know what? If it comes bottom of the pole, who cares? You've tried it. It's like Forest of the Night. At least it's something different. Which historical period would you like, Mark, to, for them to go back to? Look, they're not going to go back and do World War II, although they could do an alternate timeline of World War II, like they did in uh, Time When Exodus. There are plenty of aspects of World War II that they could they could investigate. I mean, there's the French Resistance, for instance. They could, they could do that. There's a tragic aspect to that that doesn't involve standing by while, tra- while trainloads of Jews go to Auschwitz, for instance. No, or locking Hitler in a cupboard, yeah. Well... Oh. See, that's the wrong way to do history. That's the wrong way to do history. That's right. I was listening, I think, to a, a podcast that discussed Let's Kill Hitler and the the way that the episode was being defended and how they sort of, you know, it's good that they put Hitler in the cupboard. You know, it's good that they ignored, you know, Hitler. And I was thinking there, sitting there thinking, um, you're talking about the second worst mass murderer of the 20th century and you're talking about ignoring his crimes or the effects... <laughs> The massive effect that he had on history. Yeah, I, you don't have to confront Hitler head on because he is a gaping black hole in history. But uh, what he caused, uh, the repercussions in Europe, there, there, there are some things there. What would you pick? What would I pick? Uh, my speciality at, history, at university was American history, so there were plenty of incidences in American history that the doctor could find himself in that sort of, you know, would lead to that sort of tragic, tragic ending, I suppose. Uh, there, you know, events in the Civil War, for instance, or the American Revolution that 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 that, that could do it. There, there are even you know aspects you could, if you're talking about American history, there's there's aspects of the Cold War that you could get yourself involved in. You know, instead of spying from the European angle, they're spying from the American angle. There's there's all that sort of thing that you know can lead to um, you know tragic events. Um, so th- there's plenty of events out there in history that y- you could touch on, uh, as we've discussed. But uh, the production team, for whatever re- reason, is not interested in doing so. Anyway, fear for thought there. Yes, absolutely. So, my go. So, let's go with this one here. Mary Whitehouse. Now, fans often wonder when the demise of the classic series truly began. Was it the 1985 hiatus? Was it casting Colin Baker? Was it the hiring of J&T? In terms of the worst production decisions, the worst for mine would have to be heeding the misplaced concerns of Mary Whitehouse and the resulting replacement of Hinchcliffe with Graham Williams. Now, this isn't a slight on Williams, who was burdened with the task of toning down the horror and ramping up the comedy, but it was that very task which I think started the lights being turned out on Doctor Who one by one. Because of that direction to move Doctor Who away from what made it compelling viewing began a process of reaction at the production level which killed it stone dead. Now, the chain of events for me is simple. You have Whitehouse's complaints finally being listened to, which are coupled with other factors lead to Hinchcliffe's ousting, uh, asked to tone down the violence and increase the comedy, as I mentioned before, Williams is burdened with a diminishing budget as the Labor government proves uh, inept with uh, taxpayers' money again and again, 
Add in an increasingly willful Tom Baker and the series begins to drift away from what made it so successful in the last, you know, 10 years. Thrills and spells, action and adventure with a tinge of horror thrown in. Uh, now you get Douglas Adams uh, and then in concert with Tom Baker, throw, they both throw the switch to vaudeville with decidedly mixed results. Now the ratings do hold up in the main, but fandom isn't thrilled with it. Williams gives it his all, but is burned out by budget cut after budget cut and wrestling with Baker's ego. Jayan is appointed and promises a complete change of approach, which leads to season seven, season 18, which by a lot of fans is seen as a success, but not by the general audience if judged by the viewing figures alone. Emboldened, Jayan T-forces Baker out, casts Davison, strips the Doctor of any semblance of character or, or eccentricity, then becomes slave to continuity. As a reaction to the perceived blandness of Davison, JNT then casts Colin Baker. That coat makes an entrance, and then again, fueled by perception of violence, BBC management launches a long planned strike against Doctor Who, and the axe temporarily falls. Doctor Who is crippled, limps back into television. We get season 24 as a result, and while the following two years are vast improvements, no one is watching. The show dies a second longer death. And all because of Mary Whitehouse. So my thesis there is that the the BBC management uh, caved in. They caved in. They lost their nerve, and they went a different way. And like many times, they throw a switch. It goes completely the other way. Off the rails. Yeah, off the rails. I mean, in life, there are a lot of un- unintended consequences, and I think, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have been disputing my t- my timeline, but uh, I think. The, the links in the chain that I've made indicate that you know one event follows the other. Uh, didn't necessarily have to follow those events, but you know sometimes you're informed by the past. To draw it back to Mary Whitehouse, though, I think is quite a long bow. Do you think that they overreacted uh, at you know back in I suppose seventy seven was it? I think it was Hinchcliffe's last year. Is that right? The BBC management, yes, I did overreact because I was getting bad press. Instead of actually taking a measured approach, human nature is usually to overreact and go the opposite way completely. But uh, Tom Baker, by season middle of season 16, was slightly going out of control. Um, Invasion of Time, I understand, they had memos written about it from Graham MacDonald saying, tell Tom to turn it down. Uh, the comedy aspect of it because the director and Tom Baker was just having a great big jolly about it. Mm. So uh, the humor, look, season 17 was, was too much humor. Season 18 was completely removed of humor. Mm. It needed to get that balance in the middle. And then again, in season 24, went back on the comedy, veered more towards the comedy side because that's what Michael Grade said. I want it more fun, I want more comedy. But, but there's, 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 a, there's a difference between being more fun and being more comedic. If you, one of the criticisms of the Baker era is the relentless grimness of it all. You know, there's acid baths, there's hangings, there's Davros getting his hand blown off, there's people getting their hands crushed. Hmm. That's bleak. Where is the enjoyment for everyone involved? I mean, a lot of fans have always asked, why would Perry bother travelling with the Doctor when they're constantly arguing and he's taking her to prison planets and, 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 and places like that? Where is the fun in adventuring? And... They didn't go for, you know, for fun in a, in a sense with um, with McCoy. They just went out for went for outright comedy, which for a show like Doctor Who, well, it appears to me anyway for outright comedy. Um, for a show like Doctor Who, that which needs a certain level of, of drama or seriousness to it, leavened with some you know some com- comedy, 
that just detracts from it. It undermines its credibility. If you look at City of Death, which is, I suppose, the best example of a comedic episode, it's pitched at a, at a different level, you know, where the adults actually get more out of it than the kids. That's it. I think it's a sort of a wry humour that, uh, that that runs right through it. I think J&T and Perry Davison described it almost an undergraduate university humour, where season 24, it went for pure slapstick. So... Doctor Who at its best is good drama, a couple of witty lines thrown in yep. to diffuse the situation. And we saw that in seasons 13 and 14. And, you know, Pertwee gets a couple of good one-liners here and now. I was watching Day of the Daleks the other day. And there's a couple of good one-liners in there, but the drama is not diffused. I will make this comparison. If At the beginning of Pyramids of Mars, where the Doctor is, you know, bemoaning the fact that he's turned however old... And behind him, you can see Sarah dressed up in that white dress, and she she's sort of she's mocking him very gently, and she puts the the the, the cloth over her head, and, and you could that 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 is gently amusing, you know. That's that's two characters uh, having fun with one another, and then you go to McCoy's de- debut where he's playing the spoons, he's mixing his um his metaphors, and and he's falling he's falling all over the place, and he's got this stupid grin. One the first one adds to our knowledge of the character and characters and underscores the bleakness that's coming on later the other one completely undermines the credibility of a character and immediately hamstrings and cripples mccoy as the seventh doctor for a large part of the audience and it's only with a great deal of effort in season the following two seasons that mccoy comes out of his time on the show with you know any sort of credibility then nobody was watching it well that, that's exactly right that's exactly right because I think the damage had been done earlier on but my next point though actually sort of touches on a couple of a uh, couple of your comments so I would actually say Tom Baker not leaving after season 17 would have meant that Sharda would have been finished and JNT could have implemented his new broom policy with a new doctor which would have made more sense and look I like season 18 but if you look at it now Tom Baker's almost the odd man out, isn't he? Yes. The reason why season 18's ratings weren't that great... Look, season 17's the ratings were artificially inflated because of the ITV strike. Yes. Season 18, it was had, had Buck Rogers on the other channel. Yes, I was watching that as well. However... Traitor. I know. I mean, it's easily led with those sort of flashbang things. But was the public already bored with Tom Baker by then? and had seen some of season 17 and season 16 and thinking it's not been treated seriously. If Tom Baker had left at the end of season 17, Sharda would have been completed, for better or for worse. But it would have given J&T the perfect excuse to do all the changes, ring the changes in, and have a new leading man in there for season 18. That's an interesting perspective to take, actually. That, that uh, That's thrown me for a loop there. Would debuting Davison in a similar season 18 have worked? Because season eighteen is pretty is pretty dark, and you've got Megloss at the start, or near the start. I can see Peter Davison doing the Leisure Hive. Look, a lot of those season eighteen stories can perfectly work for Davison. I mean, Full Circle can work for Davison. It worked on audio with the um, Andrew Smith's uh, revisitation of it, almost with yes. Mistfall. Yes. Um, I can see Davison doing Warriors Gate. I don't. I can't see Davison doing Legopolis, something like Legopolis, though. But some of those uh, stories in Davison's time were quite. If you look at them, were quite dark. Yes. Airshock was quite dark, so. Yeah, no, that's true. I suppose if you if you teamed, if you teamed Davison just with Nissa, when Nissa has a scientific background, stories like you know mm. Warriors Gate or Legopolis, which are heavily you know science based, uh, in a sort of with a with a fantasy. Uh, sugarcoating over the top um, that would would work very well 
I think that would work work very well. If you're going to uh, exit uh, Baker out in season 17, one of the common complaints about Legopolis is it's not a fitting end for Baker's Doctor. How how would you? Um, how would, I mean, it's it's almost an impossible question because you don't know until you do it. But how would you give Baker that ending, that that heroic ending? Well, Sharda would have obviously been rewritten to take into consideration his ending. Mm. You compare Legopolis to Sharda. I mean, Sharda's a bit more. It's got a lot more ideas in it. Mm. It would have guaranteed its uh, its completion because it was Tom Baker's last story, and it would have been again Tom Baker saving the universe, but pitched differently. I was just going to say, do you make Sharda four episodes and then Baker's finale two? Just a short, sharp punch to the gut and he's out. Potentially. You can structure it any way you want, really. I mean, it's got sufficient plot in to keep it going, but adding that extra uh, urgency of the Doctor's got to resolve a situation and, and potentially he's going to die, and in fact, you know, he does. Mm. And Leisure Half kicks off with Davison on the beach, mm. and it would have given uh, Tom Baker the excuse not to marry Lala Wood. Oh, I think he would have found it any excuse. Um... I was just thinking. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I mean, you had Pertwee, Pertwee's doctor go out on the basis of you know insatiable curiosity and, and the arrogance of that leading to his downfall, and then you have uh, Davison checking out off the back of you know his his hopeless uh, heroism, uh, anonymous heroism, really. Uh, I just you have uh, Tom Baker as as big and as you know brash and as brooding as he is. Um, you you would you'd be looking for a sort of you know ride of the Valkyrie sort of uh, uh, heroic ending for him saving saving something saving the universe. Uh, I mean I don't mind the ending to Legopolis. Um, there's a sort of poignant uh, poignant sadness to it that that, that matches the, the rest of the season. Um, but uh, some people have have argued that perhaps uh, you know he should have been given something a bit more dramatic to to, to work with, but. Uh, it's an interesting. It's an interesting point you raise. Did he? I mean, did he stay too long? Do you think he stood stayed too long? Just that one extra year or two years? Yeah. Mm. Look, you're giving the benefit of the doubt. I definitely think you know, season seventeen. He should have gone by end of that because mm. he looks so out of place in season eighteen. I mean, look, I like his performance. I love his performance in it, but he just looks like the old man's hanging around. For, you know, the funerals happen and he's at the wake and he's not enjoying himself despite how much alcohol he's drinking. <laughs> What's your next one? Let's just strap ourselves in for this one. Continuity, otherwise known as pandering to the fan base. Now, Doctor Who fans are ludicrously involved in this show. They watch it well past the due date on their childhood, and many embrace it in all its forms to the point of attempting to shoehorn dimensions in time into a comprehensible timeline. Some fans are prepared to be seen in public wearing a replica of that coat, while others will embarrass themselves unto the seventh generation wearing a knitted cap with a Dalek eye stalk wobbling obscenely from it. These are the sort of people that continuity entices into its warm, sticky, dreadful embrace. Dreadful because within that poisonous bosom, all decent story ideas die a long, lingering, suffocating death. Sure, a nod here or a bit there, much like to the cyanide addict, provides its own thrills. And that's what Doctor Who fans had up until J&T found himself lured by the siren call of fans' acclaim at the new emphasis on continuity. Now, there are all sorts of reasons J&T fell into the continuity trap. 
Continuity can be addictive, especially in the pre-VHS days where fans, new and old, were eager to experience something based on the show's past. And like addicts, fandom lapped it up like drug-addled beagles, creating a feedback loop of fan acclaim, leading to more continuity, leading to more acclaim, etc, etc. A lack of storytelling chops himself led J&T to suggest ideas that were based on older successes, such as the disastrous depiction of the Silurians and Sea Devils in Warriors of the Deep. Whatever the real reason, the overuse of continuity, particularly in the early 80s, was one of the production reasons that led to the cancellation of Doctor Who. Rumour has it that the new series is rapidly approaching the continuity event horizon. Pray for us. <laughs> I was just going to say one word. Snap. <laughs> ah, you've got that as well. My second point was having a dedicated continuity advisor attached to the program. I put brackets. Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> Look, what I will say with continuity is that the show, um, a show of this length inevitably will have continuity i mean you know the daleks came back multiple times and they had to find a reason for that uh and, and a depiction of you know sort of a dalek hierarchy and culture and, and the continuity just flows from the fact that the show has been on so long you make good use of continuity not by slathering it on but by uh, hints and, and and bits and pieces here that you you sort of like like easter eggs i suppose in the way in the common you know the modern vernacular hitting it up really hard in stories like say Warriors of the Deep uh, and getting it badly wrong um, does nothing for the show does nothing for uh, does nothing for the scriptwriters because you're ex- expected to shoehorn these aspects into the into the story at the expense of, of, of story and sure you watch Attack of the Cybermen no one's seen Tomb of the Cybermen for 25 years and you go ah that's what the cyber tombs look like but really it, uh, it, I mean, the common complaint about Attack of the Cybermen is that there's about three different strands of continuity running through it. And if you're, you know, the uh, the mythical average viewer, you're scratching your head going, what's going on here, instead of not concentrating on the storyline, as it were. Uh, so you season the story with, with continuity, you don't drown it with continuity. I think in season 18, it was sort of peppered, you know, like they'd say the galactic coordinates for Gallifrey, and it was quite light, light touch. But as... Um, Earthshock, we had the, the the past clips to Old Doctors, which I, did, I don't mind, it was fine, because it didn't really interfere with the story, it was just pretty much an aid memoir, really. Morgan Undead, where you had the big continuity clash in terms of, well, it was set in 1977, and the Brigadier, and unit dating, and it's still being debated today. Uh, Warriors of the Deep, apparently, Ian Levine had said that the continuity was actually even worse before he got his hands rewriting it. But it's when, as you said, you start, you start being a slave to it and it's driving the narrative. That's when you start excluding your audiences and Attack of the Cybermen, to me, is the worst offender of mm. that. It almost feels that J&T was not as forward-looking as he sort of made out to be in season 18, that he was afraid to strike out on his own and constantly was looking over his shoulder uh, at the past, and it's 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 ironic in a sense because he basically refused to get any of those writers from the past and directors to come on who had est- had helped establish that continuity in the first place. So if he was so uh, in in endeared towards continuity, the, the question then is, well, why didn't he get any of those you know great writers back? He basically had to be you know strong armed into getting Holmes back for the Five Doctors uh, initially, but then you know obviously for Caves of Androzani and, and and the stories that came after that. So yeah, uh, it's just a strange one. But even like Star Trek: Next Generation, all those shows started getting a bit continuity heavy as well. You know, referencing past episodes of Star Trek, the original series, and new episodes of Next Gen, and and uh, it was Deep Space Nine, was it the Tribbles one? I can't remember. Mm. Trouble with Tribbles. 
compare it like in Name of the Doctor had, you know, you referenced Valyard. Well, it passed over everybody else's head. We all went at home and had a wry smile to ourselves. Same with the Macro and Gridlock. Mm. It didn't interfere with the plot. The plot wasn't hinged on the Macro being revealed from, you know, we have to watch, go back and listen to the, the audio from 1967. It was peppered lightly. Mm. It's when you start spooning it on heavy with Attack of the Sidemen style that you're just going to gorge yourself and roll out a very fat man. There's, there's hints um, in Series 9 that there will be elements of the past. Uh, we've seen visual evidence of that in the trailer that was coming out about two or three weeks ago. Mm. How do you um, how do you feel about the, the, the new series' approach to continuity? I mean, as, as you've said, they've, they've more peppered than anything else. Uh, have they... How have they gone with it, do you think? I think Name of the Doctor, they sort of started to get a little bit heavy. The first real acknowledgement of previous Doctors even was in Human Nature. They look in the, in that, uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, time crashed and you had the, the time stamp where it was in the, in the next Doctor. So I think, that's, again, it's that peppering. It doesn't mm. interfere with the plot. Day of the Doctor, I think they got the balance right, mm. especially for an anniversary story. To be honest, I really haven't read up on what's happening much with Series 9. I did see the trailer, and then, and I, I just hope they just... Again, it's that balance. You don't want to start, you know... Light, light references. Nothing too heavy. You know, like, if they put a Dalek in from the 60s, for example, nobody's really going to pick up on that much, apart from us. But it's when he starts referencing, oh, look, it's the same floor tiles I, uh, I encountered on the planet of the Exelons... Yes. Uh, in 1974, check it out, you know, and uh, press the red button and you go straight to that episode. That's when it goes too far. It's funny, um, in the uh, the previews or the, uh, the discussion of Asylum of the Daleks, uh, before it was screened, uh, fandom, uh, was lit, we led ourselves to believe in a sense that every single Dalek ever uh, would make an appearance. Yes. And we all, well, uh, not, not, not me personally, but I mean a number of fans felt cheated actually that not every Dalek was uh, ever was was shown and the ones that were just simply went around and around in circles so there's that there's that balancing act i suppose you can't you can't please everyone you've got to remember you're making the show for a general audience for joe public who yep. are not going to give two hoots about what happened 30 40 years ago so again it's just getting that balance right but they know don't be completely you know slavish to it like dedicated continuity advisor on the program just gonna end in tears and it did it did it did sadly Mm. It did. So you you have now that we've played Snap. Uh, do you have anything else to say about continuity? Um, less is more. That's all I'll say. Less is more. Uh, as in life, as with McDonald's, less is more. Correct. Now, well, that leaves me with the last slot, then, Mark. Actually, no. I've, I've, I, even though I've snapped you, I mm. can replace it with a couple of others. <laughs> Would you like to? I'll quickly say. Uh, it's funny how we're focusing a lot on the 80s and not the new series that much. But? This one still focuses on the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> not utilising the 45-minute format imposed on season 22 in a better way. I know the decision was made quite late in the day to change the structure of the season from 26-25 to 13-45. Look, they had already had some stories in the pipeline, so Vengeance on Varus, no worries. Mark of the Rana, yep, fine. But I think they could have dropped... The two doctors definitely down to four parters, so two 45 minute stories. Mm. It, it just sags in the middle badly. Time Lash could have been reduced to a one parter. Yes. Or, or potentially not made at all. A no parter. Time Lash is a no parter. A no parter could have been a big finish coming soon. With those reductions in stories, they could have had a couple more stories there 
as two-parters just to just to break the season up a bit. Mm. Short, sharp adventures because the Awakening worked pretty well, in my opinion, the previous season. Uh, also worked as a 50-minute compilation. But I just think uh, with a season of that, that grimness, it needed a couple of light touches in there and I think a couple of uh, one-parters, I should say, 45-minute episodes like they're doing the new series now, could have balanced that season in a different way. All roads lead to Rome. Cyber Brig, a.k.a. The Iron Patriot. <laughs> I should have not uh, said we're focusing on the classic series completely. <laughs> the idea that the Brigadier, beloved by many fans, would have his dying consciousness kidnapped by the Master and then have his rotting corpse encased in a metal suit to be part of an army of similarly enslaved people attempting a takeover of the planet he had time and time again protected from alien incursions is so offensive it still leaves me shaking my head in disgust almost a year later. Like the round peg in a square hole disaster that is the gender swap of the Master to Missy, the very idea of the Cyber Brigadier is a slap in the face to genuine fans with a love of the show in their hearts. There was absolutely no need in story terms for Moffat to take this approach. And yet he did, showing he is prepared to throw any aspect of the show's history under a bus, presumably so he can garner extra publicity for the show. Stephen Moffat is a wonderfully talented writer at the helm of a fantastically successful TV series. But with great power comes great responsibility. The very idea of a Cyber Brigadier is a pure affront to those of us who stayed faithful to the show during the wilderness years and who now wonder with fear in their hearts what else about the series he and a compliant production team are prepared to traduce in the interest of pandering to popular entertainment. The Brigadier is a fictional character who fans over the years imbued with an affection greater than mere words in a script would ordinarily elicit. Using aspects of the show's history this badly, especially characters as totemic as the Brigadier, is a slippery slope which the production team would do well not to approach in the future. If the show's past can't be respected, what hope the future? I thought you were going to say the War Doctor. <laughs> uh, I, look, I, I would defend the War Doctor in the sense that it allegedly was something that was done at the very, very last moment, apparently. But even having said that, I couldn't find a way to get McGann to play the War Doctor role much, much more easily and understandably than I can uh, a hitherto unknown Doctor somewhere in between um, 8 and 10. And wouldn't it have been a much more interesting story, I know we're deviating a bit, we might as well talk about it quickly, to see the good man turn to the bad man and have redemption? That's. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, the the argument against that would be that no one knows who who the eighth doctor is, but um if you if you write it correctly, it, it, it doesn't matter who the eighth doctor is. You can get the audience on board. It's not a question of a good man becomes a bad man. It's a good man, the eighth doctor becoming a broken man and making the wrong choice. You know, finding himself going down a path that leads to the wrong choice. Yeah. And I think that would have been a much more powerful uh, story idea. And McGann's got the acting chops to to carry it off. Then shoehorning in a, an unknown doctor from 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 nowhere, from you know from, from Moffat's backside, really. And having an actor like John Hurt did not make any difference in people watching Day of the Doctor. It didn't make iota a difference. No, there was no real extra impact. That's exactly it. It was basically you know you weren't going to get fifty thousand John Hurt fans tuned tuning in saying, oh, I'm going to watch this because he's in it. Exactly. It was going to raid its socks off anyway. But anyway, we we digress completely. Let's go back on to the Iron Patriot. The only positive thing about the Iron Patriot is that the amount of uh, fan cartoons lampooning him are being quite uh, impressive. Would you think that the uh, that Moffat would re- revisit the idea of the 
the Iron Patriot coming back to the series? Of course he would. <sighs> because if you read it in DWM, and a lot of people think it was a good idea. Yes. And like JNT, uh, who, you know, who read DWM and go, oh, people like it. I'll keep doing it. It gives you a skewed perception on, on what people like. Look, in the day, people, some people did like it. A lot of people seem to like Missy. But those people are wrong. They're entitled to their views. No, they're, their views are wrong. <laughs> their views are wrong. It's, it's just, it's, I, I don't understand how anyone can have that mindset that those ideas were good. I mean, and just to backpedal slightly, the production, t- we, we can say that the production team would, you know, reinforce the error by going back to the Iron Patriot. In their defence... After the debacle that was the new paradigm Daleks in Victory of the Daleks, we I don't think we've seen, except I think in a, <laughs> at the very end of a long shot in Asylum of the Daleks, the, the new paradigm Daleks, have we? I saw them in the Cardiff exhibition uh, because that's where they were fighting their time. Did you come back of... later that night and strap explosives to your chest and take them all out? <laughs> no, but I just thought, oh, it's nice. I found a use for them. <laughs> <laughs> just to take up space. Yes. They're like the new Wotan. <laughs> Doctor Who is required. He will bring back the Iron Patriot at some point. Well, I suppose as long as uh, Kate Lethbridge-Stewart is in the series, mm. um, there's there's always that possibility. I mean, in, in, in that episode, A Death in Heaven, I liked the touch of having the Brigadier's portrait in the, in the plane. Yeah. That was great. I quite, I quite, I mean, a little bit over the top. It's just this enormous portrait of him there. That was enough. But yeah. you know what it is? It's, it's, digging, it's digging up someone's corpse and flogging it with a riding crop all the way around the racetrack. <laughs> no, it's called digging up a corpse and reanimating it. It's just... it. And, the, and my fundamental problem with it is, is the Brigadier, as I said in my bit, the Brigadier is just, he's a fictional character, but he's so closely, as is the Doctor, true? Yes. But he's so closely tied to one man's performance that you don't think of it, I don't think of it merely as a, as a production mistake. I think of it almost as a desecration of Courtney's performance. Mm. It's just unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. There were... If, if Moffat was going to go down this insane idea of Missy gifting the Doctor an army of the dead, the Master's evil. I don't think the Master is completely insane. That's, you know, that's that doesn't make any sense. You didn't have to, you know, then drag the Brigadier into it. What, what's the point? What was the point of doing that? You already had Danny who was dead. You already had Danny who was in people's hearts. Why not, you know, why not concentrate on his his thing it just you know and it just it makes me concerned i mean it's only a tv show but it makes me concerned about what else will the production team foist on us foist on us what other rotting corpse will they disinter to throw in our faces and go ha look how clever we are you know what f you cardiff f you it's amazing you know a year later it still touches a, a raw nerve doesn't it it does it it does it's just it does. um but, you know, we're not doing a podcast because we're bored with Doctor Who. We're doing a podcast because we really like Doctor Who. So you're going to get those sort of uh, uh, emotions expressed in that way. F you, Cardiff, F you. <laughs> you need to stop your desk when you're doing it. No, I won't, I won't. I've got a soft hand. My last entry into this uh, canon is the decision to show the story of a new Doctor at the end of a season, i.e. the twin dilemma after Caves of Androzani. And look, let's be honest, Davison was fairly popular, right? And he was fairly safe. A fairly, some people say bland performance. It was a safe performance. And to have that, the end of the season, having the, the Doctor appearing in a way which is so completely out of character. Beloved Doctor has gone away and replaced 
by a character who's going completely nutso in the first episode, strangling companions left, right and centre. Colin Baker said it was brave. You can hear the nails of Doctor Who's coffin being hammered as soon as the Twin Dilemma Part 1's being aired. Does Twin Dilemma work uh, nine months after Caves of Androzani airs? Or just Twin Dilemma doesn't work at all? Doesn't work at all. You go straight into uh, attack? Look, that's the thing. Mm. I mean, it would have been better because it would have given more credence to the fact he jumped in the pit with that policeman and started punching the, the crap out of him, right? Yes. As opposed to a doctor just jumping into the pit and having a punch up for the sake of it. It's not Pertwee, you know, defending himself. It's basically Colin Baker's going, oh, that, that policeman's in. I'll just go and finish him off. It's funny. It, J&T uh, is always uh, praised for his ability to wring uh, every penny out of the budget. But I've read that uh, even though Davison didn't appear in every story in season 21, he was paid for every story that aired in, in season 21. He was, even, he was paid for the full, yeah. uh, the full run. Same with Mark Strickson as well. Oh, really? Yeah, Mark Strickson was contracted to the end as well. Good agent, very good agent. They got money for jam, basically. I would still contend that Twin Dilemma is better than Death in Heaven, uh, but I would agree with you that it... Well, it's a commonplace now, isn't it? I mean, they, they burdened uh, the audience with the knowledge of the performance uh, and the production values of The Twin Dilemma for nine months. And that probably probably helped colour uh, the audience's expectations of what they were going to get. The funny thing was that when uh, Attack came back, Attack came back? When Attack screened, its ratings, uh, for that first episode anyway, was about 9.1, which was the highest it had been for a couple of years, and it was the last time Doctor Who reached those heights. Mm. I think the telling blow is that the next uh, episode lost a couple of million viewers, and by the middle of the uh, the season was down to about 6.5 before ramping back up with uh, Revelation. Mm. So I suppose it's a credit to the viewing audience that having seen Twin Dilemma, they gave Baker a second chance. Uh, but they don't. I don't think they were prepared to give him a third chance, really, were they? Not really, especially when the, uh, the trial, the organisation wasn't behind it either. And equally telling about uh, JNT's weaknesses was that he was unable to distinguish between the brilliance of Caves and the ordinariness of Twin Dilemma because he praised it. He openly praised it uh, at some sort of um, convention. Convention before it was aired, saying, "You're going to love this. This is, you know." I th- he said, "This is my best production ever." <laughs> Now, you, you wonder yeah. what the fans attending that convention thought when they saw Twin Dilemma. It must have been a real, it must have been a real kick in the guts for his credibility amongst fandom. Is it at that point? Is it at that point that DWB starts stabbing ferociously at JNT at every opportunity? It was quite muted, wasn't it? As soon as that cancellation happened, then it was basically you know all gloves are off. Was, they, they went hell for leather. It was just ridiculous. Not ridiculous. It was you know. Um, it's funny how we focus mainly on the 80s, isn't it? You go back to uh, Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee and Baker, and it really is a bit of a golden era of the show. Mm. It's, it's, it's 17 or 18 years, no, it's 14 or 15 years, of, uh, of very popular, very entertaining, barely a step, a step put wrong uh, for the show. And yeah. you could you could talk about you know well you know maybe the over reliance on CSO you know made the show look a bit you know crap uh, in certain stories but you know that's a minor thing really when you compare it to the the popularity of Pertwee and the, the great scripts that were coming out etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's pretty hard to find uh, a production problem that you would class or a production issue that you would class as problematic uh, for that first 
era. And if anyone out there has anything that they'd like to nominate, please send it through and we'll read it out. I think because also the wheels did fall off in the 80s in terms of, uh, you know, obviously from an organisational goodwill towards the program. Yeah. And the, the problems of the program are much more highlighted then, I suppose, because, you know, we lived through it. Tonight we've we've picked out individual aspects of things that have gone wrong. And, mm. you know, I've, I've had a very sharp focus on, on Baker's costume. It's all of those things. It's the continuity. It's J&T. It's, 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 it's the costuming, the production values uh, the choices that all went to, and, and it's an indifferent management that all killed the show off in the in the mid eighties. It was a perfect storm, wasn't it? It was. It was. Now enough of us rambling on. We asked our lovely listeners what they think uh, are the worst crimes committed against the program. So we've got a fairly uh, long list, which is great. So we'll start cracking through them now. Rob at Who Wars. All the way from Sin City. Hello, Rob. He says, Spending too much time on Silver in the 96 TV movie. Better to start with McGann, but what an outrageous suggestion at the time. However, it was still way too close to the classic era to even contemplate that we'd not see an old Doctor back. Uh, yes, I agree with that, actually. Rose got that bit right. New Doctor, straight into it. He also mentions the dialogue of Pip and Jane Baker. Tries to be clever and uses big words, but comes across poorly. Holmes was a master of it, though. Correct. I think the problem with the Pip and Jane Baker was... Maybe production values on their stories, perhaps. I don't mind Mark of the Rani. Yeah, Mark of the Rani would be the, the one that, um, aside from that, I mean, Tom and the Rani, awful. Uh, but, I mean, they, they, I think the problem was, in the main, they were called in for emergency script writing at the very last minute. <laughs> Correct. Uh, and they didn't know who they were writing for in Tom and the Rani, so, you know, mm. you had to make it with someone with spoons. Just ridiculous. Yeah, and using big words. What about you, Rob? Omega, Omega, uh, all the way from the alternate reality, the antimatter <laughs> universe. Omega sends us a message from the antimatter universe. Uh, worst production mistake, uh, Colin Baker's outfit and bipolar start. Worst story mistake, not killing off Adric in full circle. Maybe his brother would have been a better choice. As uh, I think his brother would have been a better choice, actually, yes. The lovely people at uh, Crinoid Podcast uh, say, I loathe Missy. Not a gender issue, it's just a characterization we've seen too often. The Sim Master, Moriarty, etc. There is that uh, aspect of, you know, just loony, lunacy that Moffat has injected into, into Missy, and you see it in Moriarty as well. Sort of a smug insanity, which I just, is a, I, don't, I don't like it. And uh, the, sim, the depiction of the Sim Master was uh, just as bad, in my opinion, as well. And that uh, posting from the guys at the Crinoid podcast kicked off a, a bit of activity on our Twitter feed where Rob from Who Was Then said, to be fair, though, and I know this is not news to anyone, the Master should be more Moriarty-ish. Mm-hmm. I think it was Jim on the Crinoid says, uh, came back and said, yes, but I personally dislike the kooky reading of Moriarty and the Master slash Missy and... Moffat's hide, etc. And then the Fight from Eternity podcast uh, guys came back and said, We all adore Missy, but I see what you mean about the similarity. So Missy does have her fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, I stand by what I said before. Yeah, so uh, David Kitchen, uh, a friend and guest on the podcast, uh, says, Death in Heaven equals, uh, yeah, this is in capital letters with full stops, worst episode ever. Oh, I absolutely believe that. Both awful, uh, but harmless. Death in Heaven is awful and destroys Who Icons, uh, which is the the production mistake that uh, I, I centred on so strongly before. Uh, Dalton Trombone comes back and says, Never forget Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks. I have forgotten that because I never went back and watched it. So Did they do a Dalek-human hybrid with the Dalek eye stalk sticking out of his head, like a fringe of... I am a human Dalek, I think it was. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, yes. Wrong, wrong. So wrong, so wrong. I'll have to go and look where that came in the polls. Um, <laughs> yes. I think that's the one that drove the scriptwriter away from Doctor Who from fans' reactions, sadly. I think so. it was. I think they were expecting all uh, praise and, and, and showers of roses, but they went on to uh, the Gallifrey Pace and a couple of other forums and, and the vitriol yeah, drove her away. Mm. No, she came back, though, and did the uh, Sontaran two-parter. Yes, and I suppose the fan reaction for that drove her away as well. That would be unfair. <laughs> that would be unfair of me to say. Uh, the next one from Mark. The Flight Through Eternity podcast came back and said, John Wiles, uh, producer of the uh, mid-60s run of Doctor Who, racism in Celestial Toymaker, the arc, antagonism with Hartnell, dismissive attitude to program, bad handling of Maureen's exit, a Sherlock Doctor Who can have, can and had challenged racism, compared treatment of race in Sensorites and the arc. And then Dave Kitchen only had 140 characters to come back with, and he wrote, also a defence, your sagacities. I note on Twitter that someone has nominated John Wiles and Donald Tosh to your court on charges including racism, and I wish to offer a defence. As I understand, this meme in fandom is based in the main on two stories, the Ark and Celestial Toymaker. I contend that calling the Ark racist or colonial, as some have it, is a complete misreading of the story. Surely the lesson of the Ark is that even the polite and patronising colonialism of the humans in the first half is wrong. The Doctor calls out specifically that the Monoids are more intelligent than humans give them credit for. The story ends with the humans having got their canuppance and everybody learning that they must live as equals. The Doctor says you must travel with understanding as well as hope. Is this not clearly a message against racism? And the idea that Celestial Toymaker story means Chinese rather than heavenly or cosmic is, I would argue, simply not supported by the fact that the Toymaker is clearly a very powerful cosmic alien. If you remove these two pillars of the argument, I suggest that the case against Mr. Wiles falls down. Furthermore, he oversaw the massacre, which is a story all about the consequence of intolerance, in that case, religious intolerance. I rest my case. In fairness, I'd go back and also listen to the Flight Through Eternity podcast. I think it was number eight where they were talking about the uh, the Wiles era. So give that a go just to get that balance. That's what we're all about. So, uh, and then, of course, on our Facebook page, we had some commentary from some of our listeners. Uh, Jeff Woodell says, The worst crime is how a potentially brilliant reboot of the Cybermen, hopefully to a more half-human design, ended up in a pile of cyber crap that is Nightmare in Silver. That's even a worse crime than having a comedy castle in the story and it being funny as cyber piles. I wonder what cyber piles would be like. Nightmare in silver. <laughs> Mark Cockrum of the Blue Box podcast uh, follows up. Uh, to follow up on Jeff's theme, the Cybermen, although a favourite beastie from my childhood, have gone from scary Frankenstein half-man, half-machine abominations to generic robots. Uh, now, Damien Zanik uh, says, I think one of the worst production errors made was when J&T decided not to use any of the previous Who writers for his tenure apart from having to be persuaded to use Holmes. Just a shame as the stories would have been written to a decent standard and we might not have had to put up with Pip and Jane. As Eric Sayward was an inexperienced script editor, he had to, quote, polish a few turds, unquote, to get them to a semi-watchable standard. Yes. That's fairly forthright there. <laughs> it's hard to disagree, isn't it, really? No, it's, uh, no, it is hard to disagree. It needed that balance between experienced hands 
mm-hmm. and, and new talent. As Ian Levine points out, if Eric had a couple of, old, of the old riders on hand, get on with it, say we could have brought some new riders on and guided them through the process where I think Eric was sort of left to do the lot. So Dave Kitchen uh, says, one, visiting Gallifrey. Whilst Deadly Assassin is a great story, deciding that Gallifrey could now be visited and we can see behind the curtain of the Time Lords led to a run of underwhelming Gallifrey stories and the creation of a, of a fixed who lore that hamstrung the show for decades to come. Your second one, Mirror's Mind, bringing Davros back to life. Not only was this done badly in Destiny, but it constrained the dialects for the rest of the classic run. Third one is Underworld, a bad story done with no budget. Full of terrible actors, James Maxwell is the one good actor, and even he looks like he wants to be somewhere else. Another mad computer, and the stupidest looking robots in the history of sci-fi. No responsible production team should have let this pass the idea stage. A bit like Death in Heaven. That's my <laughs> that's my addition, not Dave's. Uh, and uh, Dave comes up with this final point here for the waters of Mars. In this story, the production team seems to imply that suicide is a solution to a problem. Whatever the dramatic value of this ending, surely this is a very careless message to include in a family show. And isn't it compounded by the fact that we're led to believe that there'll be a payoff for it? Much like in Planet of the Spiders, the Doctor has to face the consequences of his arrogance and greed for knowledge. But instead, the next story ignores it for a silly runaround with the Flying Master meaning that the suicide was all for nothing anyway. So some very good points there by Dave, I think. I mean, and, and the whole visiting Gallifrey thing, I mean, once once that was brought up in uh, in uh, uh, Troughton's last story, The War Games, mm. uh, it was almost inevitable uh, that the series would go back to that as they did during the Pertwee year era. And uh, to an extent, I mean, it's, it's, it's very heavily seeded through... Um, Understandably, I suppose, if the Doctor wants to escape his exile imposed on him by his own people, the Time Lords. Um, but uh, there, there is a lot of it during the Pertwee years, isn't there? War Games it looks like it's a very uh, mysterious place with smoke columns floating around. Mm. And it almost looks half abandoned, in, in a sense. Sort of desolate, almost. But as you go through the stories, Deadly Assassin is, from a design point of view, is fantastic. By the time mm. you get to Ark of Infinity, they've, they've turned it into Ikea. <laughs> it's an airport lounge, it's isn't it? It's an airport lounge, and they're all sitting there having frappuccinos. Uh, it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, now having uh, concluded our uh, trial of the worst production uh, decisions ever, we'll be taking the convicted uh, production errors out the back and summarily executing them. Uh, and on that cheery note, we'll be back uh, in a moment with uh, more letters. Right, everybody, it's time for our overdue letters segment, so let's hammer time! Give it to me one more time! You've got mail. First letter's from Tim Gambrell. He says, Guys, I checked out your current podcast, Pretty Engaging Stuff, although I'm inspired to write because it occurred to me that whilst listening, that far from summing up all looking in on the Omni-Rumor, and the people it's involved from the outside, by writing his book and revealing things on your podcast, Dave Hoskin has himself become a key factor in that fan imploding beast and may possibly become one of the defining texts of the movement. I wonder if Dave has considered that, far from representing fans and the Omnirumor movement, he may in fact kick the whole thing forward into its next sorry lurch. I'm rather looking forward to reading it myself, but I think I'll avoid the forums when it comes out. Cheers, Tim. To that, I would say that the impression I got that Dave has done a lot of his research already, had done a lot of his interviews already. Sure, there's more to come, I'm sure. Mm. I don't think him uh, being interviewed by us will change the tenor 
of the discussion on the forums anyway. I closely monitored some of the main forums, uh, their response to the OmniRumor interview with uh, with Dave, and there, there was no one changed their opinion about the OmniRumor based on what uh, based on the interview that we had with Dave. Uh, so I don't think you know him coming on the show is going to change you know the course of how he's going to write the book really. Uh, if anyone wants to uh, wants to read the, the you know some of the responses, you, I think most of them most of the interesting ones are on Planet Monday's forum uh, from you know the, the the day after the podcast dropped. Yeah, so I think I think Dave will you know proceed as per normal uh, with his book, and uh, as you say, I'm I'm certainly interested in reading it. Uh, I think it's going to be one of a number of books that will come out, uh, and it has the virtue of being the first one, uh, first cab off the rank. So uh, yes, I'll be happy to get my hands on it uh, when it's re- released, possibly next year. And Dave will be coming back on the podcast closer to the release date to talk about it. Yes, the next one is from Ben Schneider. Hello, says Ben. My name is Ben, and I'm a 42 to doom listener from the opposite hemisphere. I live in America, the other English-speaking A country, specifically in the state of Indiana, where I am pretty much alone in my Doctor Who fandom for a good many miles in all directions. Now, I am a card-carrying 42-year-old fart, so let me tell you that I've never pictured you guys as old farts. In fact, I always thought you guys sounded late 20s. (laughs) Must be the accent. It Look, as a sidebar, it's a well-known fact that the Australian accent de-ages the citizens here by at least 30 years. So, uh, no, that's not true at all. Really? I'm... (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm pleased that someone thinks that I'm in my late 20s, if only that were true. I still look like I'm in my, in my late 20s. You do, you, you smooth-faced <laughs> bastard. Age uh, is actually, not no, me much. My, uh, as a sidebar again, my... Um, this is really into the weeds now. My, my uh, work bathroom uh, has mirrors everywhere, uh, except on the ceiling, thank God. And so washing my hands, I'm able to see the back of my head and the top of it. And uh, the, the the amount of white in my hair these days and the fact that it's it's a bit threadbare on top uh, leads me to say that uh, I just, I'd rather have the hair that I had when I was in my late 20s than I do currently. Why so many mirrors? Oh, it's just the L-shaped nature of the room. So oh. there's, you know, uh, hand basins on one side and then hand basins on the uh, around the corner. Anyway... Uh, I didn't design it, I just use it. <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> <laughs> Frequently. Uh, but as mentioned previously, I like your show because you do call it out when you don't like something. I honestly get a little frustrated when some Doctor Who podcasts sort of follow the party line, if you know what I mean. The minute a podcaster says the tired old cliche of, if you don't like what the show is doing, then don't watch, well, my hand immediately goes for the delete button. I mean, if you're passionate enough about a TV show to go through the trouble of having a podcast dedicated to it, then by God, you should let your feeling fly. If you're confused or hurt or even angry by something you see on the show, talk about it. Opinions are interesting. This is what I love about the Americans. You know, they live in a culture where any opinion can be expressed very, very freely. So the, the notion that people should shut their mouths and not express themselves is one that is, you know, anathema and alien to, to our American cousins. So good on Ben for saying that, I say. We do call out things when we like them, and we do call out things that we don't like about the show. Look, I'm, I'm old enough not to be lying to myself about most things these days, and I'm not going to sugarcoat my opinions uh, all the time. All the time. There's no, there's no need to it. I mean, after all, it's a TV show that elicits strong opinions. Ours, mine is just one opinion amongst the whole chorus of them. I think as you get older, you um, your tolerance for bullshit diminishes rapidly, and you just come out and just say it as it is. You know, we're halfway to death, so we might as well just well, get over statist- it. Actually, statistically, Mark, we're more than halfway to death, frankly. So, um, 
Thanks. On that cheery note. Anyway, I've been listening for a while now and I've always looked forward to the downloads when they come. I find the conversation fun and lively, but I really appreciate how you tackle topics that other podcasts will not, either because they're tired of them or for some reason feel above it. It's your latest podcast that really inspired me to write to you, the one with Dave Hoskin uh, interviewed on the Omnirumor. The 1960s Doctor Who is my favourite era, so I try to follow the Omnirumor with its highs and lows as much as I can, but it seems like it's become a forbidden topic now in so many forums and podcasts. I'm sure a lot of that is the result of a simple, honest frustration, but I still want to know what's happening. So I really appreciate how you guys treat the subject, meaning you don't put on an air of, oh god, not this again, and you don't get on a high horse and dismiss it outright. You guys really talk about, try to understand it, and seem honestly interested in all the various fascinating aspects of this truly amazing story. Like you pointed out, a man was kidnapped and held for ransom in in Africa. Anyway, looking forward to what you guys bring us next. And if you ever run out of show topics, I'd love to hear you guys discuss the popularity of Doctor Who in context with what that was usually on on Australian television back then. I mean, how different from Australian culture was the show compared to what you normally had on TV? I guess I'm talking more about the classic show back when you guys first became fans. For example, I first got into Doctor Who because at the time, in America, my only sci-fi option on TV was Star Trek The Next Generation, and I really hated the first couple of seasons for many, many reasons. Then there were mindless action shows like The A-Team. I guess I just didn't like what American TV was giving me, what they were demanding like that. So I stumbled onto Doctor Who one night, and it was like a shock, completely different in tone and feel from everything American being shoved down my throat on the proper channels, and I loved it. Anyway, this is getting long. Again, I have no one to talk to about Doctor Who. But I did want to let you know that I truly enjoy the conversation and always look forward to what you bring to my MP3 player on a regular basis. Thanks for the great work, Ben. Thanks, Ben. That's a really lovely letter, Ben. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to, to write that all up and, and get in touch with us. And it's a, it was a great pleasure to read it, actually. Um, in terms of uh, what was else was on a TV back in, the, say, the 70s when I was watching it, there's a lot of American imports, a lot of British imports. I mean, I was a kid, I was watching Get Smart and Hogan's Heroes and F Troop and and uh, the Hardy Boys and, and all that sort of thing. And, and you know, the Cisco Kid, uh, just shows from, from overseas. I mean, there were local shows. There's a lot of, you know, Australia has a great tradition of, of TV soaps, but, you know, I'd rather run a mile than, than have to watch anything like that. But um, those the shows that I was watching were definitely a lot of imports from overseas. So in episode 158 of the Blue Box podcast, uh, Friends from Down Under, it's got myself, uh, Rob, and uh, Rob from Who Was, all talking about uh, Doctor Who viewing experience from an Australian point of view. So if you haven't checked that out, go and have a listen to it, because it was a lot of fun doing that, actually. Yeah, we didn't have to do the editing, so it was a lot, <laughs> lot of... <laughs> Thank goodness. So once again, Ben, thanks. And uh, if you ever feel the need to put pen to paper, please do so again. Or send us through an MP3. We'll put it in the podcast. We'll drop it in. Absolutely. Uh, Doc Whom of the uh, Diddly Dumb podcast uh, dropped us a note on our Facebook page and says, My problem with Dave Hoskin is his claim that no copies of his book are available yet because he hasn't finished it. Oh, yeah? And how does he explain this photo posted online by somebody working at the warehouse of Hoskin Publishing? People say that Dave is a really nice guy, but I don't care about that. I want the truth, and I want my truth now. As for Dave's claim that Phil is suffering from PTSD, lots of people have been interviewed by 42 to Doomsday, and most of them say that the mental scars heal with time and counselling. If we don't get an answer soon on a firm publishing date, then I'm going to phone around every book printer in Australia. And Doc posted a picture of uh, the warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark was... uh, being stored. I actually thought it was a picture from a warehouse in Wigan, but I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. 
so uh, thank you, Doc, for that uh, uh, for that email. Ringing around every book printer in Australia, I think there's about three of them, so that's a very, very quick phone call. Yes, and uh, Skype is your friend, Doc. It's very cheap. So the next one is uh, from the uh, legendary and indeed mythic Sharak Jizz, who uh, is perhaps the fifth member of the Blue Box podcast uh, in secret. Uh, and Sharak has written to us, Dear Doomsdayers, I just listened to your last podcast. It was quite good. I listened because I heard on the Blue Box podcast with JR, he is my friend, so I thought I'd listen to you. This podcast you had some friends on called Dave D. Dozy, Becky, <laughs> Mick and Tish. Tish. Mm. Titch, you are all Austrians and you sound funny, although better than JR when he tries to do an Austrian accent. I like Austrians. They smack each other's bottoms, which is funny. Before you talk about Doctor Who, you talked about other good TV like The Lord Mouse, Bride's Dress Removed and Rumpole. I have not seen these, though. I would like to see Bride's Dress Removed. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) <laughs> this is Stop late la- at night. We're recording this, so sorry. Stop this laughing. Is- I know. Keep going. <laughs> sorry. All right. So Sherrick goes on. You talked about when you were young, and Mick said he grew up with Tom Baker. That must have been exciting and also very confusing, as Tom Baker is not an Austrian and doesn't talk like you do. Mick also talked about a club he used to run called the Victoria's Secret Club, which had a magazine about hedgehogs. <laughs> I sometimes get the club catalogue, as it has nice picture in it, and my hand gets tired. When you talked about Doctor Who, you about how a lot of fans didn't like it when Perry died, but later wasn't dead. I was very glad that she wasn't dead, as she is really pretty even bald. I wonder if she is bald anywhere else. You said about Joe and Cliff Richard when Joe left, and how he wasn't trying to take her pants off. I would have been trying to do that because she was nice, and I have seen her without her pants on, and my hand got tired again. You talked about seasoned asses like the ones they did in Babe Station 5. I like Babe Station 5, although the other channels... Are good too. I watch them quite a lot. And <laughs> Jay, I have so much composed when you read this. I held it together. I held it together. Uh, once more under the bridge, dear friends. I watch them quite a lot, and my hand gets tired, and my phone bill is quite high. You said that new Doctor Who is TV for Buffety and the Next Generation. I like both of these shows. Buffety the Umpire Slapper has lots of nice girls on. My favourite is Cordelius, but I also like Anger Buffy and Wallow. Next Germination had Diane Troy, who was apathetic and was in a film called The Winking Lady, where she takes off all her clothes. I liked it very much, and my hand got very tired. Mick said that Doctor Who was a role-playing model for fans. I would like to meet a role-playing model one day. I would play whatever role she wanted me to. You didn't want a lady doctor, although you liked vibrator jokes. I would like to have a lady doctor as I would go there every week, but my doctor is a big fat man who smells, so I try to stay away, especially when he wants to touch me in certain places. You said Quango, which was funny, haha. <laughs> Dave said that the BBC were in bed with Howling Mad Murdoch, which must have been uncomfortable as TV sets were big and clunky back then. You had a break, and then Dave came back on a segue. I would like a segue, but I think I would fall off. You talked about Next Germination again, and the lady doctor's son, Leslie Crowther, who you said was a very good actor. I liked him on Crackerjack, but I don't know if you ever got that in Austria. You also talked about the difference between the companions Rose, Donna and Martha, who you said held her own. I wish you would hold mine. I would like that. The difference was that Rose wore very tight shirts, Donna shouted a lot, and Martha held her own, but not anyone else's. I hope that helps. You said that the 10th Doctor was mooning over Rose, but I never saw that bit, and I think I would have spotted it. I would rather Rose mooned as she has a nice bottom. You said she ended up with a blow-up David 10-inch. 
I would like a blow up Rose and also would her to blow up me. Ha ha. You talked about the pasta and noodles gang and said that they were in a Segway. I am sure they would fall off as Segways are not that big. I like the pasta and noodles gang, especially Jenny, who took some of her clothes off in the first story last year, Deep Throats. You said that sex infects everything, which is true, as I have a very bad rash at the moment. Then you talked about the missing epidurals, which Johnny Morris is looking for. I hope he finds the missing one of Planter of the Daleks, where Joe takes off all her clothes and the Daleks find her. I have seen pictures of that one, and my hand got tired again. Apparently, some fans have found where Johnny Morris lives. I would like to find where Clara and Perry live, as I would go around there all the time if I knew. You said that the show has legs. Another show which has legs is Strictly Coming Dancing, which has lots of lovely girl dancers who all have very nice legs. I watch it a lot when my hand is up to it. You had all been watching Bloke 7, which I liked a lot, especially Sue Lin, who was also Jane, where her clothes always fell off. I watched that a lot until I couldn't manage anymore. (laughs) You said that there was a factory, the road called Megara, which was just past the semen factory. I don't see why you need a factory for that, as I can help you if you need me to. Finally, you talked about old TV programs like Roger Ramjet and Dr. Snuggles who built a mechanical ass after having a kip on the grass. They don't make kids shows like that anymore, which is a shame. I will listen to your show again and I might write again if you want me to. Your friend, Sharak Jizz. Well done, Rob. That, <laughs> that, 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 that was an experience. Thank you, Sharak. Uh, send him again. Please write again. Maybe, maybe an MP3. Sharek as an idea. I have another letter here from Jed Sweeney. He says, G'day guys, how are you going? After seven years in the country, I reckon I'm getting the hang of the local dialect. I heard you on the Blue Box podcast recently, 158 Friends Down Under, and looked up your podcast on iTunes. I love the latest podcast reviewing DWB and Sonic Screwdriver from the time of season 24. So look forward to working my way back through the archives. Your drag from the archives special invokes so many memories. I picked up on DWB in late 1985 when I was at uni in Manchester and was a regular visitor to Odyssey 7 in the Cornbrook Centre where it purloined the glossy pages of DWB. Can you recall classic headlines like for 14 episodes and say what vindicates DWB's stance being seared in my memory even though even if they are not strictly accurate memories? No, I think they are actually accurate. That's, I think that, uh, that's very, very yeah, accurate. Especially for 14, 14. Uh, the headlines about the movie were particularly hilarious, and I'd forgotten the name Coast to Coast. In fact, if someone asked me now about Coast to Coast, I'd probably say do the Hucklebuck. If you don't know how to do it, then you're out of luck. I do recall one UK paper superimposing Donald Sutherland's head onto McCoy's body in one speculative article. I generally laughed out loud when you read the story from Sonic Scooter about BBC Enterprises confirming James he would leave after season 25, as they confirmed seasons 26 and 27. And you know what? I'd forgotten that Bonnie Langford had got a speeding ticket. Typical and expected of a JNT supporter I probably thought at the time. At the time, I was right there with the anti-JNT brigade. I may be a lot calmer now, as I reckon that whilst he wasn't the best producer ever, my view now is that the show would have probably folded earlier than it did, but it was still his fault. Maybe I am not that much calmer now. I may have been a barker, but definitely not doable. Remember when we were coming up with podcasting names, and one of the podcasting names you thought of were calling ourselves a doable barker? No, not, not me, Mark. That was you, <laughs> that was not me. me. <laughs> yeah, I think it lasted for about 10 minutes, I think. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, look, you know, you've got you to explore these, uh, these things. <laughs> exactly. Although, yeah, we'll probably have to change our name to 43 or 44 to Doomsday now. No, no, no. No, no, okay. no. Just okay. hold back the tide, okay? If I could, If I could turn back time... 
Thanks, Jeff. Now, if that avoided giving us Season 24, that may have not been such a bad thing. But given that Season 25 and 26 were actually quite good, it was frustrating that it was cancelled, despite the possibly and definitely misleading statements to the contrary from Peter Slavine, sorry, Krajine. Back to Season 24, it was my final year when that abomination of was broadcast. I rang into open air after a waste of my time in the Rani was broadcast to express my disappointment, which my polite way of saying it was utter shite. However, I guess a young Chris Chibnall succeeded in some extent expressing my views. Then came Paradwas Towers. What a festering pile of excrement. I sat there slack-jawed watching it with my housemates and tried to defend it to them by saying that they were using interesting language. <laughs> it was the only novel in the target range that I refused to buy, but I could not condemn it publicly. It's much easier to write Barker hate mail. For some reason I was generally okay with Delta and Dragonfire apart from the sodden cliffhanger, but I do recall in 1988 after reading the novelization of Delta and the Bannerman that I was so pissed off by its childish approach that I wrote to DWB with a note along the lines of anyone who complains about Doctor Who books being in the children's section of WH Smith should read Delta and the Banana Men and they will see why. Only for DWB to correct my stinging witticism over the show name and put the correct title in. I don't think I ever got over that. Around this time I also recall an editorial on DWM having a right go at DWB and I was barkingly disgusted at what they wrote. But a letter in the following edition of DWM by Chris Howarth, who I met at Manchester and the Salford Local Group, put it all into perspective. I believe that DWM editorial in question had been penned by Richard Marsden. After the TV movie, I gave up on there ever being a new program on the BBC. So 2003 was great when we got the announcement and somehow in 2005 I managed to appear on the Doctor Who Mastermind special and got to meet Christopher Eccleston. He seemed nervous on the day and foolishly I wondered if it was because he was surrounded by us geeks. As it happens, he had probably just told the production office by then where to stick to the job and may have been a bit uncomfortable promoting it. Mind you, it meant that he could come home to Salford, where the special was recorded. So swings and roundabouts, hey? So thanks for the trip down Nostalgia Street. It reminded me of a time when I was involved with the Manchester and Salford local group. Regularly visited Odyssey 7. Regards, Jed in Geelong, occasional SEN caller in. I'm sure you don't want to know, but I didn't win the Doctor Who Mastermind special. Thanks, Jed. Jeez, it's a long way to come to Australia and end up in Geelong, Jed. Lovely town. All right, is this the last letter, Mark? This is the last letter of this bumper mailbag. All right, Nathaniel DeBell, Dear 42 to Doomsday, I am writing to address the comments you have made regarding Stephen Moffat's master, not because I disagree with your criticisms, but because I don't believe you have adequately explained your reasons for your dislike of a female characterisation. Hopefully my concerns with Moffat's character are similar to yours. Firstly, while Moffat's strong female characters are not exactly the same, they certainly share a character type folder in Moffat's filing cabinet. Characters like River Song, Tasha Lem, and now Michelle Gomez's master are all portrayed with a sassy love-hate relationship with the Doctor, which although might fit into Moffat's vision of the show, do not match the way the master is best realised, the Moriarty to the Doctor's homes. Secondly, changing the master into a woman has added no additional dimensional quality to the master which improves upon this already well-established character. While I am not opposed to a female master, the risk of the controversial decision to change the sex of this Time Lord should be balanced with adequate reward. In my opinion, there has not been enough reward. To me, it seems that the name The Master has been slapped onto a character not remotely like the successful Roger Delgado or Anthony Only. The reason being that people associate this name with a big baddie in Doctor Who. Instead, I would have preferred if Michelle Gomez's character was either a previously established female Time Lord, Romana or the Rani, or an entirely new person. I can't accept the notion that the modern show cannot bring back classic monsters and villains because they have not adequately penetrated the consciousness of the great British public. Casual watchers of the show will accept 
limb lock they have for the Mecha in Gridlock, previous appearance in 1967, or the Ice Warriors in Cold War, previous appearance in 1974. Fanatics will of course be ecstatic. Sincerely, Nathaniel DeBell. Well, Nathaniel, if there ever was uh, any query about my dislike of the idea of changing the sex, I think you've, you've nicely encapsulated it. Uh, if you're going to do it, uh, do it for a good reason, not simply to garner attention. Uh, have it in the characterization of, of the piece and, uh, and and not just as something done for the sake of doing it. I think uh, I think that would be my opinion. I'm struggling to think of uh, a, a human character, you know, some, someone that we would recognize as human in any of Moffat's characters that he's written. I mean, you look at Coupling and by and large their caricatures. Uh, you look, I mean, I haven't seen Hyde, so I, no, not Hyde, Jekyll, so I can't comment on that. Uh, I, I prefer the writing that Moffat ex- exhibited in, in, in Press Gang uh, more than anything else he's done since. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit hard for me to to sort of put my finger on it. But, um, yeah, no. What about Madame Pompadour in Girl in the Fireplace? How do you think she was written? Uh, look, you know, that's, that's actually a valid point, Mark, I suppose, uh, in a sense that is some good writing of character there. Uh, so I take that point. Look, in our Death in Heaven podcast, we went on quite a bit about the, we didn't like Missy a year later we're still going on about it I would have preferred personally to have seen uh, the character either being uh, Romana or the Rani or even better still a completely new character um, lost in time war found a watch came back as opposed to the, the the master it's just it's not written particularly well i don't think the master's being portrayed in a camp way the same way eric roberts portrayed in a camp mm. way and to us and to a certain extent anthony Ainley, because we'd seen roger delgado's and you and even derek jacoby where you could see what could be done with a character yeah i think a straighter straighter characterization and a straighter performance by gomez would have warmed me very very slightly to the whole idea I just think sometimes that Moffat loves tweaking fandom's nose or sometimes just punching fandom in the face with with his decisions. I mean, uh, clearly he knows his own mind and he's a fairly strong-willed character. And, uh, you know, I think the, the sort of slings and arrows that people like us fling in his, his away are easily shrugged off. But nevertheless, I think that uh, he does enjoy doing that to an extent. I mean, he would say that he's taking the show in a new direction and exploring different uh, facets of, of what can be explored with the show. Um, you know, if that makes him sleep at night, great. But for the rest of us who don't like the idea of that sort of change uh, for no particular reason, um, it, it just, just smacks of treating us with a little bit of contempt. And the reason to build a doctor an army, you know, she loves him. I mean, really? Really. I mean, you've got a strong character with Clara already. What do you, do you What do you need another one? And it'll be interesting to see how... I mean, I, my understanding is perhaps spoilers, so stop listening in three, two, one, that Missy uh, is travelling with the Doctor and Clara at some point during Series 9. So I'm interested to see how her portrayal is... is uh, how her character is depicted in, in Series 9, if that's the case. If it's more of the same, then you know what they say about when you're in a hole, you... <laughs> You should stop digging. I think Moffat has probably just carried on if it's going to be more of the same. I'd like to know if there's a hack for Lego Dimensions when it comes out so you don't have the War Doctor and don't have Missy. <laughs> I'll pay the developers to take it out. Give us a patch. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good luck. Good, good luck, luck with that, Mark. Good luck with that, Mark. <laughs> it's a challenge. I'll do my own crowdfunding enterprise. Yes, Kickstarter it, Mark. Yes, or maybe even a Patreon. Matron. Thank you. <laughs> 
So uh, once again, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, it has been a long episode, but we trust that you've enjoyed it. Our next couple of podcasts, we're hopefully we're having some guests who will be returning who haven't been on our podcast for a while. So it's part of our second birthday celebration drop. Can you believe we're two? Are we? I oh, shivers. We are two. Yes. And just like many a two-year-old, we're going to take our toys out the pram and throw them. And we're going to have some help, though. We're going to have some help. So uh, hopefully the stars can align and uh, next two podcasts will feature some special guests where I'm sure we will uh, continue to debate Missy in 3D. Only in America. And they can keep it. <laughs> I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. We'll uh, speak to you again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with with you again soon.